0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by...
1: Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and...
0: Talibur also with AEI. On this podcast, we talk about the, the challenges that have arisen to the European peace along a line that runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and about why those are important to the United States. Today, our guest, returning for the first time in some time, is Fred Kagan, uh, also a colleague of mine at uh, AEI and connected with the Institute for the Study of War. ISW has really risen to prominence uh, among even the most unsavory elements uh, <laughs> of the Russian uh, elite over the course of this war, which which Fred, I'll ask you to explain the latest chapter of. But for our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fred, welcome. It's good to have you back. The slings and arrows uh, of uh, Wagner Fortune uh, frequently go your way. Uh, Maybe it just uh, gives a little bit of entertainment. Uh, in, in the form of uh, summarizing the latest exchange with um, uh, our favorite chef.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, well, thank you for having me back. It's a, it's a delight to be uh, with you all again. Yes, so uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, um, formerly known as Putin's chef, uh, but actually the head of the Wagner Group, as well as a media uh, conglomerate, uh, de facto in uh, in Russia, um, announced uh, a couple of times that he was going to pull his uh, forces out of Bakhmut. And in fact, um, I think yesterday announced that he was going to pull them all the way out of the fight and take two months to reconstitute them. The ISW team, uh, which I oversee, uh, duly reported out on uh, what uh, Prigozhin had announced, as we often do and uh, made the additional observation which i suspect he didn't appreciate that the net effect of this announcement was to suggest that the wagner group intended to sit out the ukrainian counteroffensive. offensive um, so he uh, responded today as he sometimes uh, does um, by uh, saying that um, he will uh, no, no, he he will say he will announce uh, what what Wagner is doing and no one else should uh, uh, should say, you know, be saying what what Wagner will be will be doing, um, which is a little puzzling because he had announced what Wagner would be doing, which we had largely <laughs> read back to him. Um, so I don't know if he uh, was distressed that we had sort of closed the spark gap that he'd left, namely that the net effect of what he was saying was that Wagner was going to opt out of the counteroffensive uh, or if we were aired in some other particular of his uh, reporting, his rant. But in any event, that was his uh, response.
0: I'm just guessing his manhood felt threatened, but that's pure speculation on my well, part. Well, listen, okay. he's, already,
2: he's already made observations about whether we were or were not in touch with his deceased mother-in-law. Oh, um, that's it was, not- it was, okay, let's um, not it was go down. Yes. Let's well, not let's go, let's not go down see. that rabbit right Let's save it for For, for, the, for, 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 the, for <laughs> the record, we are we are not in touch with his deceased mother-in-law or any other deceased persons. Okay.
1: <laughs> That's
0: let, cool. let us do, however, uh, speak of Bakhmut, um, a, a long shot and dearly paid for uh, Wagner triumph, quote unquote. The Russians claim that they've gotten the last couple of piles of rubble in western Bakhmut, uh, and meanwhile, Russian regular forces uh, have had to reinforce uh, the Russian flanks north and south of Bakhmut, if I remember uh, the details correctly, against fairly limited but at least threatening uh, Ukrainian counterattacks. Fred, I think this is, you know, Bakhmut has become this sort of you know, mythical beast sort of from the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, it might be a good time to to walk us through the uh, anabasis of a small town in the uh, central Donbass uh, and try to put that in. Some, I know it's it's kind of too early to tell uh, uh, in that um, you can't really Lop off Bakhmut and the fight for it from what is about to transpire. But if anybody's got perspective on on this, it would be ISW. So if you could give us a, a brief walkthrough of how you look at that contest, that that would be a good place to start.
1: And since since we were in the context of Prigozhin and and Bakhmut um, taking advantage mm-hmm. of that. Could you also tell us why he's now announced for five or six times i stopped counting that okay he's going to- no
0: more progression jokes okay <laughs> until the last he's five the of
1: the show okay um, just it's it, no candy he, no
0: candy until you eat your peas
1: <laughs> is it is it about getting more ammunition or threatening to or how, how does that piece of the puzzle fit into the greater bahamut
2: so um First of all, we will be uh, ISW will be publishing hopefully tomorrow um, a superlative piece by uh, Katerina Stepanenko, um, one of the battle captains on that team, um, actually going through the whole con the whole history of the context in which Bakhmut has uh, figured from the start of the war, um, and I won't I'm not going to preempt uh, her her fantastic analysis, but it the the bottom line is that it has long lost any operational significance that it might have had and become almost entirely a political and symbolic uh... thing for the Russians it really doesn't matter uh... very much from any operational perspective whether the Russians have, are at the city limit which is a location of no particular significance or whether they had stopped at the canal or whether they hadn't taken the city at all Um so What is actually going on here? Prigozhin actually is the star of this show because he has made himself the star of this show and that actually really matters. In fact, he's kind of a bit of a black hole on the Russian side whose gravitational field has distorted the Russian campaign. Prigozhin is a unique figure in Russia. He has no official position in the Russian government. His participation in the war is purely as de facto head of the Wagner group of mercenaries, mercenaries being, by the way, illegal in Russia, a point that his domestic adversaries periodically point out. But he's more than that. He also controls media outlets, and he has a significant number of the war correspondents we call millbloggers, who are uh, his advocates and he has courted alliances with uh, Russian political figures and other Russian power players in the FSB and other organizations in the Russian military explicitly. So he, if you think about it in another way, he is the only person in Russia who actually commands an independent military force. And it is a sizable and effective military. Now it's not fully independent. He's dependent on the Russian MOD for ammunition and tanks and all that sort of stuff. So it's not like they couldn't shut him down in principle but he has a, a band of men whom he has recruited and who I suspect are much more loyal to him uh... than they are to Russia per se and it is absolutely fascinating to me that Putin has been okay with having somebody like that in this inner circle this somebody seems to have gotten ideas about his place in the world um, and that place in the world goes beyond the head of russia's premier mercenary outfit and Um, People have accused Prigozhin of having political ambitions, and candidly, he said some things that make it hard to dispute that. And he certainly has had ambitions to control one way or another the Russian military. Um, We assess that he has been working to pressure Putin to appoint his favored generals to the leadership positions in the Russian military, um, and that Putin has resisted. Uh, Gerasimov is still there. Gerasimov is a bitter enemy. Gerasimov and Shoigu are bitter enemies with uh, Prigozhin. Prigozhin, I think, has been trying to get them removed and has failed, but is still trying. Um, And that struggle, which I think think the sides regard as an existential struggle, that struggle has badly distorted the Russian war effort because it has meant that Prigozhin has carried on with the attack on Bakhmut, even when it was clear that the Russian Ministry of Defense and General Staff didn't want this to be going on and didn't want to support it. And they have clearly been unable to stop him from carrying on with this. He's been carrying on with it long after it had any continued operational significance. We suspect largely because, first of all, he wants to make face with Putin and demonstrate that he and he alone can produce battlefield successes. Um, and second of all, because he is in a, an existential fight for the future control of the Russian military and wants to show up, get Asimov and Shoigu. So what is the net effect of all of this? Well, the net effect is that he uh, Prigozhin bit off more than he could chew. And earlier in the spring, the Wagner offensives were culminating and the there was a big series of arguments and discussions and putin appears to have weighed in and the russian ministry of defense sent uh, russian reinforcements including airborne troops to relieve uh, the flanks so that wagner could focus entirely on the city the ukrainians then skillfully held the flanks and forced wagner to fight all the way through the city in the most attritional possible way which precaution did And now he has declared this meaningless victory um, at the expense of already having drawn some Russian forces in to free up his own fighters. But then in addition to that, the Ukrainians have conducted small but incredibly important counterattacks that have eliminated any risk of a Russian encirclement of their forces around Bakhmut and have been successful enough that the Russians have been rushing additional conventional reinforcements to the flanks. Now, if you think about what's going on right now, all of the other Russian efforts are devoted to preparing to receive the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is of course what they should be doing. So they should be conserving shells. They could, they should be digging in. They should be having the forces that are now around Bakhmut, not around Bakhmut, but elsewhere uh, preparing because they don't know where the Ukrainians are gonna attack any more than I do. Um, And instead they've come, they've been drawn to Bakhmut, all because of the gravitational pull that Prigozhin has exerted. So the main net effect of what he's done in Bakhmut is not to give Russia any advantage, but actually to present Ukraine with a number of opportunities.
0: We should continue. this. I just wanted to, for our listeners, uh, remind people that... uh... Shoigu is the defense minister of Russia and Gerasimov. Valery, uh, Valery, It's uh, Sergei and Gennady, is that right?
3: They're, they're, that, yeah, that, all right, all right. they don't come to family reunions as much as they used to. So, so I, I was wondering if we could maybe stay on this subject for a few more minutes, especially on the sort of politics slash Kremlinology side, given that these tensions and, and disagreements have been so much in the open and, and Prigozhin has been able to get away with so much. Uh, is, there, is there anything this can tell us about sort of stability of Putin's regime? You know, are there other potential contenders who might feel encouraged by, by this precedent to also go out and, 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 and sort of present a sort of you know, independent view of things? Uh, What what does it tell us about, sort of like, Putin's hold on power?
2: So, Dalabor, you you are right to seize on the fascinating aspect of this. So so what is Russia? Russia is an autocracy. Uh, It's not an oligarchy. It has not been an oligarchy. People use the word oligarch. Russia doesn't have oligarchs. Um, It is an autocracy, and one would expect in an autocracy that these kinds of conversations would be had as they were during the Soviet period, quietly behind closed doors. And that, that that was an oligarchy, right? And even then, the, the debates were, were behind closed doors or very, very oblique. These have been being had in this weird public space that Putin has preserved. In fact, it's sort of almost the only actual civil society in Russia now, tragically, is the pro-war, uh, ultranationalist community that Putin has allowed to function independently and protected from efforts by the MOD and others to shut it down. He has protected it and this is an important observation. He's protected it because before we get to the issue of stability of his regime, we assess that Putin has realized long since that his voices have lost credibility with the Russian people and that if he has any prospect of keeping the Russian people at all enthusiastically behind this endeavor, the only voices that actually have a lot of credibility are the voices of this mill community and this ultra-nationalist community who are committed fully to Putin's principles and objectives, but who speak much more truth than the Kremlin mouthpieces do about the Russian war effort. And Putin has preserved that space fascinatingly and allowed these guys to keep this space alive. And this is the space in which Prigozhin is largely operating, although sometimes he gets airtime on Russian state TV, sometimes he gets airtime on other outlets, and he has some media uh, channels of his own, which Putin permits. So the first thing is that there actually is this public information space where there is a degree of freedom of expression that is really quite shocking, including the toleration of direct attacks on Putin. Um, So that's a fascinating phenomenon um, all its own. Uh, But then What does this say for other players? Well, I go back to the previous point. There is no other player like Prigozhin. Um, It is amazing that he's been able to use a public podium to hammer the Ministry of Defense and the general staff into doing his bidding. Now, he's also clearly worked an inside game via his allies and also presumably by interacting with, with Putin. But he's used his public podium to hammer the actual authorities that be to do his bidding some percentage of the time, which is astonishing, and it does reflect his unique position. So now you speak about Ramzan Kadyrov, the the um, what should I call him, strongman, yeah. satrap of Chechnya.
0: Che- um, I think Chechen is good enough. Well, he is. <laughs> yes,
2: he's the first Chechen, shall, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. um, Kadyrov is in an interesting position, and it's different from Get Asimov's, because Kadyrov has an actual government job. Putin couldn't kind of fire him. And this would be unwise from Putin's perspective for a variety of reasons, which is why Kadyrov has a certain latitude. But he actually, that's a relatively straightforward thing in principle for Putin to do, to cause Kadyrov to be removed from his position. One of the observations that I think we made in an earlier update, earlier ISW update is that actually it's very far from obvious exactly how Putin could remove Prigozhin. The Wagner group is not a government entity, so there's no straightforward way for Putin to fire him. He could nationalize it, but that's that would be a major undertaking. But beyond that, and here there's a little bit of a blend with Kadyrov, but it's a little more complicated. Again, I think the loyalty of the Wagner guys, especially the elite, is really to Prigozhin much more than to Putin. And so the question of whether Putin actually could just pull Prigozhin out and slot someone else in. I think is much more complicated even than is the situation with Kadyrov. Let alone with Gerasimov or anybody else who's actually in a formal military structure.
0: So in Progojin's most uh, you know sort of compelling uh, video clips, there, it does seem that there you know there's some uniquely Russian themes that always pop, pop out. I mean, when everything anything goes wrong, it's because of a betrayal, you know, either by the the uh, uh, general staff and the Ministry of Defense. But it's as, you know, Wagner can never just fail or or be defeated. It must be, you know. I, I think I think he's too chicken to, to say that Shagun Garasimov are gay, but if he can get away with it, I'm you know I'm sure he's got that in his holster or someplace. Or that they're puppets of the Jews or, you know, some, you know, outsider, some that is betraying the spirit. And that's very much in line with Putinism to a large degree. But what I kind of don't get is that, you know, it's like you can't have two furors. Yeah, to the degree that, that leadership is to be the embodiment of the myth of, Rus or Ruskimir or, you know, whatever term of, you know, the the sort of myth of Mother Russia uh, is, you know, you really, you don't want to have that be up for grabs.
2: So, uh, Prigozhin's line about Shoigu and Gerasimov, which is actually, uh, this is very complicated. the, The line about betrayal is really a line in general about Westernized elites in Russia who just want to get back to making money and having their yachts in the West and aren't serious about Russia's interests, and are form some kind of peace party. That's the yeah. general line. Prigozhin layers onto that observations about the shocking incompetence of the Ministry of Defense and the Russian General Staff, which are frankly rather hard to argue with, because they have been shockingly incompetent. Um, and he is straightforward enough. I mean, remember this is a guy who makes points with sledgehammers, so. There, there's a limit to which one should read subtlety into into how he operates.
0: Well, it's a very it's a very masculine sledgehammers. It, you have here. a weird sense of masculinity, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> that's it's it's his it's
2: his sense. But yeah. um, you know, it, 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 it's a lot about incompetence. But also, look, he is well aware of the fact that he is in a death match with the conventional Russian military leadership, and so he's relatively straightforward about that. His position is they're trying to screw him and he's trying to force them to do the right thing. And in the process, he's actually getting them to do the wrong thing. Um, but from his perspective, it's the right thing because he's in a war with them. And it's this war itself that is fascinating. Now, how does this relate to Putin? So, prigozhin um, is relatively careful to avoid explicitly challenging Putin. He has made Shoigu and Gadasim of his enemies He's made vague general comments about political aims and so forth in tantalizing different ways. But he's not run right after Putin, unlike some of the other mill bloggers who've actually just come right out and attacked Putin. Prigozhin is not doing that. So from Putin's perspective, Prigozhin is not yet attacking him and is still being loyal to him, which is the thing that Putin cares about. Putin's regime is all about loyalty. That's why he won't fire these incompetent guys who've had such problems because they are loy—they have been loyal and the whole basis of the stability of his inner circle rests on if you're loyal to me, I will be loyal to you. And that gets him incompetence who he can't then remove. So Prigozhin has not betrayed Putin, but you still are right that he's become this larger-than-life figure. Now, there are two ways in which that can work for Putin. I'm going to get to the way in which it doesn't in a minute, but there are two ways in which that works for Putin. One is, so, okay, newsflash. I don't know if you guys have been tracking this, but the war is not going very well for the Russians. <laughs> Wait, we have to redo this episode entirely. <laughs> okay, sorry. hope the readers We're getting down to hear that. Okay, so war is not going well for the Russians. So this is not the kind of war that you want to be Putin, sort of all the Russias out leading his armies, because the armies are not doing it. So... He needs faces out there to be fighting this war. And Prigozhin is a very visible face. He is a somewhat more attractive, this is an incredibly weird thing to say, face than Gerasimov, Shoigu or anyone else, because he actually has gained territory, whereas they have mostly been, shall we say, politely retrograding. And in that respect, he helps Putin, first of all, by giving him any kind of success at all, and second of all, by being a very public face so that Putin is not the public face of the war which is important. The other way in which he helps Putin is that the art of being Putin historically has been to be seen to balance competing blocs rather than to simply to be an absolute dictator of the Stalin variety. And this is exactly what he does seem to be doing now. He appears to be balancing the Ministry of Defense bloc against Prigozhin and himself staying above the fray, which is a position that he likes. That's, that's where how he tries to play himself. Those are the two ways in which I think this works for him. And of course, Prigozhin, if it becomes necessary to throw somebody under the bus, presumably he can or thinks he can at some point throw Prigozhin under the bus, or alternatively throw the MOD under the bus and let let Prigozhin's guys take it over. All of that gives him sort of blowout panels uh, in case things really go bad. But this is the problem. Um, The problem for Putin is, yes, Prigozhin is becoming the face of this war, And Prigozhin has a military force that seems to be loyal to him and seems to be somewhat more effective. And he has a media apparatus and a whole bunch of other things. And it's not that obvious that Putin can simply remove him as long as the war is going on. And those factors are, I think, unique in Putin's reign. And those are things that should be making Putin uncomfortable at night. Um, I don't know if they are, but they should be.
1: So moving on to the counteroffensive and I guess the difficulties, um, two questions here in terms of what we should, what you are expecting in the weeks and months to come. One is, um, as you're tracking in detail Russian movements, conventional and, and uh Prigozhin moves, um, how has... The news of long-range um, weapons settled in with the Russians? Have you seen um, any adjustments adapt, and adaptations? Because we know that the Russians are good at adapting. That's at least one thing that they have left. Um, and then the second thing is, from my understanding, the fact that the Ukrainians have gotten this, you know, major difference, the long-range missiles, and of, co- of course the psychological effect of now the F-16s does not solve all the problems because the Russians have been um, happily mining away hundreds and hundreds of meters um, at sort of the, the border or the... Um, um, the line of contact um, between them and the Ukrainians along the 600-kilometer um, line, and so um, these are basically my two questions in terms of difficulties on either side. How are the Russians adapting to long-range missiles, um, and how are um, how are they also preventing, possibly preventing? Um, uh, an effective counteroffensive, given that, given the lines?
2: So, the Russian information space was was preoccupied with the arrival of the missiles and the initial strikes into Luhansk City, uh, which were a demonstration of the missiles' range and effectiveness. By the way, I mean, it's important to note that the Ukrainians had been developing indigenous systems that had longer range than the HIMARS and so forth. They have the Khrem uh, missile um, and they've repurposed Neptunes for, for other things. So, It's not that they have not had any long-range strike, but they have not had much, and this is much better. Um, So it is significant, and the Russian information space blew up for a while as that um, became apparent. It's too soon, I think, for us to observe the um, effects. Uh, If we think back to what the effects of the HIMARS were, the Russians had been stockpiling artillery very close to the front line to facilitate enormous and rapid resupply. And as the HIMARS started taking out ammo depots, they had to disperse and go smaller and push them further back, which reduced the rate of fire on the front line. So that is the current situation, as the Russians had adapted to the HIMARS in that way. It's important to note, by the way, that the adaptation was a mitigation. It didn't restore the Russian capability. It simply mitigated the damage the Ukrainians were doing to it, because it it did deprive the Russians of the ability to have huge stockpiles of ammunition, you know, right up close to the front line. Um, Now we're talking about the Ukrainian ability to hit deeper targets. Well, what are those targets? Well, on the one hand, they can be deeper uh, ammo depots and other things. Um, I think it's going to be a lot longer and a lot harder for us to see the actual effects of Russian adaptations to having to decentralize in the rear if they end up doing that. Um, But we've also had reports that the Ukrainians have been striking some kind of headquarters at the Mariupol and Berdyansk Mm -hmm. airfields. I, don't, I have no idea what the Ukrainians were shooting at, and I have no idea what they hit. Um, but again, to the extent that the Russians have had, I'm not going to speculate, but to the extent that the Russians have had headquarters in those areas that were important for coordinating activity, it's no longer safe for them to do so, so they will need to uh, adjust. It's hard, uh, without knowing what the Ukrainians are shooting at, it's almost impossible to evaluate what the adaptation would look like, or what the effect would be, and how permanent or temporary. So, with the range of these missiles going after these kinds of targets, I think it's going to be hard to judge what the actual effect is for a while, unless the Ukrainians find some nexus target or target set that they can hit that really unhinge things. If they did that, I would expect them to do it in relatively close, close proximity to unleashing the fury of the counteroffensive. Now as for the defensive lines, if I could, um, I think it's very important not to get hung up on the satellite imagery. Um, defenses are only defenses if they are manned. If they're not manned, they're just obstacles. Uh, Mine fields can be cleared, dragon's teeth can be cleared or destroyed, trenches can be driven over or through. Um, this is one of the first things that they teach you in, uh, you know, in small unit tactics in, in the military. But, so, but
1: when they get cleared, don't don't you then f- um, force troops and equipment into very narrow. Sure. Yeah.
2: yeah, absolutely. So they can be kill sacks. Um, right. And that's part of the purpose of minefields and all of these obstacles to create kill sacks. But again, that's significant only if there's artillery that is ready and able to shoot and take advantage of that opportunity. And there may be, but what we've been observing is that the Russian forces that we assess to be um, along large areas of the front that are of, of interest are relatively far too thin to man these defenses at ratios that would be, that any anybody would regard as doctrinally acceptable to stop a major prepared mechanized offensive. And In addition to that, it seems very clear, well, let me say we assess, and it seems very clear that the Russians, most of the Russian forces are actually positioned forward of their defensive lines. So, what they have actually done is to prepare a series of fallback positions with these lines. Now, that's important because that implies that the Russians think that they will be able to conduct a retrograde in contact with a Ukrainian mechanized offensive, falling back from positions that are not currently heavily dug in over relatively open ground to positions that are prepared for them while the Ukrainians are attacking them. I'm gonna register a certain amount of skepticism that this Russian military is gonna be capable of pulling off that maneuver because that is a maneuver that would tax very professional and well-trained forces with high morale. And that's the four Russians have none of those characteristics at this time.
0: Um, let me just push you on that a little bit, Fred. I mean, it's it's a bloody way to get information, but it can be a way to get you know if you're not if you don't really need to extract the forces that are the forward forces, but you're willing to pay that price in order to figure out where the major axes of the mm-hmm. you know Ukrainian attack would be yep I mean that that at least at least there's a there, there could logic be an operational logic there, there. there. well it, yeah that's there, a high there are price. A couple of things
2: yeah. look I don't want to oversell the optimism here I think this is going to be very challenging for the ukrainians and i and i I'm you know I'm also i mean I need to state you guys know but I need to state we don't track the ukrainians yeah I'm, there are all kinds of limitations and problems the ukrainians have and we're not you know yeah I, well, I, 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 you know want your listeners to understand I'm not just trying to present a rosy picture here but Just from the standpoint of evaluating the Russian position, it's not a good position because what you're saying makes sense if two things hold. A, that there are reserves that actually can be sent in a timely fashion to the breakthrough sectors. And B, if you think that your reserves can actually get there. And what we're observing is, first of all, there basically are no theater reserves. The Russians appear to have no meaningful theater reserve and we can see that in various ways but among the ways we see that is that as they've been reinforcing Bakhmut, they've been drawing from forces that were on the front line elsewhere Um, and we also with our own sort of counting and finger math have we, we can account for almost all of the known russian conventional forces anyway by front line positions so there there are not they don't have an uncommitted theater reserve right but then if you think about Beyond that, if they had reserves, could they get there? Um, Think about the effectiveness of any side conducting advances other than those that have been either very slow grinding and attritional or the result of planned and prepared major mechanized operations with some degree of surprise. Um, Zero, That's the null basically. set, right? Yeah, That's the null set, fundamentally. <laughs> yeah. So the Russians, if you imagine that the Ukrainians are attacking somewhere and Russian reserves are going to hit them from the flank World War II style, neither side has actually really shown the ability to do that at the pace of an actual mechanized advance. So if the Russians can slow the Ukrainian advance down so that it moves very, very gradually, then yes that becomes an issue but if the ukrainian advance can move at the rate of any normal mechanized offensive then it's extremely unlikely the russians will be able to react in time
3: on this question of of lack of russian reserves could i ask you a cheeky question about you know what you make of this recent incursion by this russian volunteer unit in under under the ukrainian flag into into belgorod which i think has given rise to you know whole spectrum of wonderful uh, imagery and and memes on on Twitter. I thought it was you know, it was just tremendous. But is, is there um, is there a sort of military value in in, in, in in you know little incursions of this sort, keeping Russians on their toes, or is there is there more?
2: Than- well, it, it depends on yeah no, it depends on what the Russians do. Um, you know the the immediate and we need to keep in mind. So the, there is a, a sort of a Wagner line of entrenchments that was dug all around the periphery, including in Bielgorod, And in fact, a terrific map that the ISW team put out uh, yesterday will show you that uh, at least some of the villages that these um, guys uh, claim to have gotten to are past that Fogner line, which goes to the point about the utility of fortifications that are not actually uh, manned. Um, So um that is leading to a certain clamor in the Russian information space and in Russian society to bring more forces there uh, to protect uh, the Russian border. And I suspect that the Russians will have to do that to some extent, uh, because it is an embarrassment to have these guys, and I'm, I'm trying hard not to use adjectives, to have these guys uh, roll across the border and roll into towns and stuff. Even on this small scale,
0: they they gained more ground than Wagner well, did in, is, uh, in 24 hours. So, <laughs> if
2: you know, to the extent that they caused the Russians to uh, pin forces that are—I mean, we already, from our perspective, it was great because we got the word of a Russian unit that was on the frontier. We hadn't known that it was there, so I'm happy to know that there's a, elements of a motorized rifle brigade that have been nominally responsible, not doing a great job, but nominally responsible for that sector. Um, but there are calls for more militias and, and other resources. And considering how tight the Russian military resourcing is right now, any resources that they allocate to covering a flank... Because, come on, guys, you know, guess what? The Ukrainians are not actually going to inv- invade Byelkhodod. You know, this this stuff, these stunts are stunts, and this isn't actually going anywhere. So, in truth, the Russians would be wise to just say... These are stunts and stuff, but in the real world, it's very hard to do that. So we'll we'll see. Fred, I
0: know we're not gonna like hold you to formal uh, projections or predictions about the counteroffensive, but it it would still be worth talking about sort of in general terms, uh, especially because this is going to sort of demand of the Ukrainians things that they haven't really had to do before. Not that I doubt. That they are been thinking about it and training for it and probably quite capable of doing it. But in order to achieve a breakthrough, you know, they'll, they'll have to mass fires, mass forces, all the rest of that stuff from a, a relatively limited supply of well equipped, you know, um, they'll have to take their best shot at it. And so a lot of the advantages of dispersion and, you know, lower level mission command and so on, the things that the Ukrainians have excelled at, they now have to sort of put these building blocks together in a campaign-like fashion. Again, I don't doubt that they're quite capable of doing that, but I'd just be interested in your take as to what you see. How will we be able to, to measure the success of this campaign that, uh, you know, has been so long anticipated. Well,
2: look, I mean, I think that one's relatively straightforward to answer. If the Ukrainians can mount an effective uh, mechanized offensive um, on a reasonable scale that advances uh, at a reasonable mechanized offensive pace um, in one or more locations on the line, then that is what we're looking for. If the Russians are able to stop uh, Ukrainian offensives at or near their uh, prepared defensive positions even if it's not the first prepared defensive position that is likely although it's a little complicated not successful the caveat is i could see a circumstance in which the ukrainians push part way through in one sector and then uh, launch elsewhere um, but at the end of the day they're going to need to break through these prepared defensive positions that get to operationally if not strategically critical terrain. So a degrading the counteroffensive overall will be relatively straightforward. Telling initially whether it looks like it is headed in the right direction or not, as long as we're confident, I mean, at a certain point we'll be confident enough that they actually have leaned into it, that this is it, no kidding. That'll also be relatively straightforward. Um, the point that you make about the need for them to... Uh, conduct combined arms at a high level and do command and control of large forces is in principle and I think in practice will be uh, right. Although, again, it does depend on how much they mass and how many different sectors they attack a relatively weak and demoralized foe in. Keeping in mind that the basic requirement at the end of the day is to be better than the adversary. And that is a relatively low bar right now. So the Ukrainians have shown a high degree of realism about their own capabilities historically. I think the patience that they are displaying in launching this counteroffensive suggests that they have not lost a sense of their own limitations and um, that they are proceeding in in a way that recognizes the magnitude of the task ahead of them doesn't mean they will pull it off, but I don't see anything to to shake my confidence in their ability to conduct this operation sensibly and in accord with their capabilities and successfully. I think it's important to add, though, that it's extraordinarily unlikely that the Ukrainians will achieve all of their critical operational objectives in this single counteroffensive. Um, This is a lot of territory to retake. There's a lot of Russian forces to fight. Uh, The ability of the Russian forces to reconstitute, rally, uh, and reconstitute and reestablish defensive positions in the rear. There's a lot of rear for them to do that in. Uh, And a lot of that rear matters. Um, So our going in supposition should be that this is not going to be the counteroffensive that ends the war. And this is not going to be a single counteroffensive that gets everything. And I think people are starting to get a little confused about this, partly because of the buildup, the drama of this thing, right, is such that this is like this needs to be the final act. I think it's very unlikely that this is going to be a suitable final act, which means that we, the West, really need to be thinking about a few things. One is leaning into the next counteroffensive and preparations for that. And I think we're getting distracted by premature conversations about the unicorn of some magical piece that will remove all this problem from our laps um and then secondarily i'm pleased the president started talking about the long-term requirement of um rearming uh ukraine but um the thought is late in coming to him candidly and um the scale, I think, that we are all imagining is far lower than the Ukrainians are actually going to require and that Western interests are actually going to require, because I I don't recall if I've spoken about it with you guys before or not. I think I have. Uh, look, everybody, we're going to have to fully move the Ukrainians onto NATO standard systems because I'm thinking the Russians aren't going to sell them T-72s anymore. So... I mean, so we're done with all of the Eastern European, you know, Soviet leftover equipment, which means what? It means that the Ukrainians are going to have to field a sizable force that will be a sufficient deterrent, conventional deterrent force, and it's going to have to be fully re-equipped with Western systems. I really am afraid that we have not collectively wrapped our heads around
1: that. And I think there's more to it. And what we're also not aware kind of adding to what you were saying, Fred, is that We've given for this counteroffensive a third of what they asked for and what they needed. And if we're looking at, for instance, the Bradleys, some are without engine, some are just crap that was in some warehouses um, rusting. And so we have to take that into account as well. We're not only not giving them what they need for this counter-offensive, but it looks so bright and shiny for, you know, the end of the war. You're indeed right. We're not even close to that when it comes to equipment and covering the area that is Ukraine, right?
0: It, it, it would really be a shame if there were, a, you know, an operationally significant Ukrainian breakthrough that then the war freezes again, uh, you know, for another... You You mean
2: the way it did after the Kharkiv counteroffensive, in part because apparently, according to President Biden, they didn't need tanks until now. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, exactly. We've seen this movie before. No, you
0: can sort of see. Yeah, exactly. I I would like to end on one small, but uh, hopefully sunnier note uh, or turn a a somewhat dark note into a, a sunnier one. What has been striking to me is the utter inability of the Russians to do anything with their missile and airstrikes that seems to have forestalled any counteroffensive in any way. I, I'm sure the Ukrainians are staying as dispersed as they can be until the last and you know, doing all the tactical things that they should be. But every time the Russians waste an expensive munition that gets shot down by a patriot, I just think boy, they're just, I mean, it's a human tragedy. And again, the Russians just don't seem to have either the capability or the capacity to forestall uh, Ukraine's buildup, again, whatever state they're in.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's a little bit hard to tell because we, you know, we don't know what all the targets are that are being hit in the rear. So I'm not i'm not i'm not but prepared to say but they're way in. The, the,
0: i mean yeah they're way they're, in the rear
2: that's right they're not
0: they're way in the rear so
2: that gets to uh, an issue that i think has been brought out and i, I i'll try to find the reference um but people have written people who are actually expert on this have written about it so i'm parroting them but i think what the russians really lack is the ability to do rapid dynamic targeting and this is i think one of the things that when the question is be sort of why haven't they been planking the trains carrying stuff coming in I think the answer is because they actually they don't have the ability to do that kind of rapid dynamic targeting. I don't know to what extent that's a technical issue, but it's certainly a procedural personnel issue. They are not trained and equipped to do that. And the fact, and this is key, the fact that we have given the Ukrainians just enough air defense to keep Russian manned aircraft out of the skies over Ukraine means that they don't have the normal way that one would do that kind of dynamic targeting, Right. So that is a point of emphasis of how critically vital it is uh, to make sure that we get give the Ukrainians what they need to keep Russian manned aircraft out of their skies. Because the minute you start getting Su-34s and Su-35s able to operate freely, I mean, leave aside the question of bears unloading on Kyiv, which is, you know, we know what that looks like in Syria. But if you, you know, if they could have su or even the Su-25s at range, you know, going in and following trains and shooting them up, then we would be in a whole other, the Ukrainians would be in a whole other world. But without the ability to put manned aircraft over targets, the Russians really don't seem to have a kill chain that lets them put a Kindle on a moving target, even though in theory that should be a straightforward undertaking.
0: Fred, uh, thank you so much for coming in. You always are so erudite in these conversations that every time you uh, c- conclude uh, a segment. Uh, it seems like the, the agenda is thoroughly addressed and exhausted. <laughs> it's really a remarkable skill. So we're just going to have to keep having you back every time we. Um, and and particularly um, if if there is a counteroffensive that uh, that we, so we can sort of see unfolding. Very much look forward to your analysis. Uh, so thanks to thanks to you still for joining us. So, from me, Giselle Donnelly, and... Julia Zosa, and... Dona Thanks so much for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges uh, that have arisen along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag at Front Pod, one very long word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Finally, just wanted to remind you that we have a newsletter that comes out periodically, which you can sign up for uh, through the link included in the show notes that comes out every other week. Not only includes links to the episodes, but uh, exclusive Q&A material with the three of us and also links to the, the things that we write elsewhere, op-eds and articles uh, from us on the topic. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.